0: Bow our heads in prayer. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, may the words that I am about to speak reflect your wisdom and your will, and may, be, may it be acceptable in your sight. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, a professor from a prestigious university in the United States, Duke University to be precise, was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. Uh, This was something that was completely unexpected. It came as a shock to the whole family. Everybody was stunned. One day a neighbor came by to, I guess, offer her sympathy. And at one point she stated, well, everything happens for a reason. The husband then asked, well, what is the reason that my wife is dying? To which the neighbor responded, well, Perhaps she does not have enough faith. Now, I'm not going to talk about faith in this sermon, though I will come back to it a little later in my commentary. Rather, I want to talk about something completely different. This quarter Sabbath school lesson was about stewardship. And in one of the first lessons, we looked briefly at something called the prosperity gospel. And that is what I want to talk about today. And I'm not going to talk about individual pastors or preachers. If you want, you can turn on the television on Sunday and see half a dozen of them. I'm not going to talk about the secular origins of a lot of this gospel. I'm not going to talk about church hierarchies. I'm not going to talk about the self-help nature of much of what these teachings involve. Instead, I want to focus on the fact that the teachings of the prosperity gospel are largely unbiblical and theologically unsound. So what exactly is the prosperity gospel? Well, here's one definition. It's a religious belief which holds that financial blessings are always the will of God for us and that faith, positive speech, and donations to the church will increase our own material wealth. Put simply, it says that God grants us health and wealth to those with the right kind of faith. With faith, we will be blessed materially. It also provides a Christian-like explanation as to why some people make it and others don't. As such, it is a very self-centered doctrine, focusing on us and our entitlements and what we can get out of the Lord. I want to take a bit of time to look at our scripture verse, Malachi 3.10. If 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 you can put that on the screen, please. Since this is one of the Bible verses that proponents of prosperity gospel use to justify their particular beliefs about material well-being. Malachi 3.10 reads in the King James Version, Bring all your tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven, I will pour out such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now let me just pause here and ask a question. Why do we give time? As Eder Macedo, one of the founders of the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God states, it is clear that those who are faithful with their tithes have the privilege to demand from God the fulfillment of his promise in their lives, and compulsorily the Lord has to fulfill it. Demand of God? God has to do something compulsorily? I don't think so. But let's step back for a moment. One of the things that we must do when studying any Bible verse is to try to understand the particular context of that verse. How does a particular verse relate to the verses that proceed or follow it? What is the message of a particular chapter or of a particular book? How does the verse relate to other verses in the Bible? And what again is the historical context? as clifford goldstein says about bible study context 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 i quote so what is the context in which malachi 3:10 should be seen has anybody read malachi lately uh, you should first the book of malachi is a prophetic lament for the fact that once again israel has departed from god the people's hearts have grown cold They question why they should even follow God. And look at some of the questions they pose to God. In what way have you, God, loved us? In what way have we despised your name? In what way have we defiled you? In what way have we robbed you? What have we spoken against you? No wonder that God is tired and wearied by a people who do not submit to him, but instead argue their points against him. More more specifically, the people have become lax in giving their tithes and offerings, as well as in providing the necessary sacrifices. In addition, the priests have left what they should be doing and are defiling the name of God. As a result, as God states in the preceding verse, Malachi 3.9, You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. The curse, in this case for an agricultural society, was that the crops failed and no harvest is taking place. But due to the magnitude of the problem, it went beyond just tithes, and it looked at what was the heart of the people. Restitution of tithes could never be enough to recover God's favor there needed to be a rededication to fulfilling the commands of God. And God did promise that if the people change their ways and surrender themselves to God, then, as the Lord says, I will spare them. Thus, here in Malachi is a repetition of a theme that is repeated many times in the Old Testament, that after the threats God proposes for his wayward people, There is always the promise of blessings if they return to Him. As God says, they will be my people and I will be their God. In this particular case, the windows of heaven will be opened and blessings will be poured out. It's an agricultural society, so it's going to rain. There will be crops. The fruits of the ground will be plentiful and the vine will not fail to bear fruit. So Malachi 3.10 refers specifically to the situation of a fallen people, Israel, at a particular point in time. In an agricultural society cursed by drought, the benefit of returning to God is an abundant harvest, so abundant in this case that there will not be space to store it in the temple. So does Malachi 3.10 have a more general application, particularly that the Prosperity Gospel attributes to it? Certainly enough, some churches preach it, but it does not say in any way, shape, or form that if you give your tithes, you will get a material reward. So that's a bit of a a detour, I guess. But a more serious problem is that the emphasis of the prosperity gospel on material well-being and wealth is contrary to what the Bible teaches us. Christ's own teachings eschew material rewards as Christ says in Luke twelve fifteen, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things he possesseth. And again, as He says in Matthew six twenty four, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And again, looking at Mark 10, verses 24 and 25, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And once again, from Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not steal. For where there is treasure, there will your heart be also. There's a clear meaning to all of these teachings of Christ. Material wealth in the world is nothing. It means nothing. We cannot be obsessed with it. We cannot focus on it because the true treasure that we have is not here, but in heaven. And the truest treasure that we have is Christ Jesus. One part of the prosperity gospel that troubles me advances the erroneous view that in some way man shares a form of deity with God. It is sometimes said in their literature that man is a lower case God who has the power to create and control his own destiny when I read about this I I had some concern as where did this particular argument or gospel originate and I believe we need no look no further than Genesis 35 where Satan says for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good from evil. Be as gods? Is that heavenly? Absolutely not. But it is an attractive idea for some people to think that they are in control, that things are decided by their own efforts, that they can achieve things all by themselves. All it takes is a little positive thinking. There is no need in this world for an uppercase God. It's all about me. I did it. It's my success. It's my talents. It's my abilities. Nothing to do with God. Proponents of this belief put forward other Bible verses to buttress this position. For example, Psalm 82 1 says, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty, he judgeth among the gods. Yet even a quick reading of the psalm shows that the gods, being spoken of in lowercase, are no more than the judges of Israel, perhaps called gods by the people they judge because they can decide over matters of life or death. But in the end, it is God who judges, and it is God who judges the immoral acts of these judges. The prosperity gospel also is something that focuses very much on the positive side of things. All that is needed is the right attitude, and good things will result. There is no suffering. There aren't any trials. There aren't any tribulations, if you have the right faith. It's rather a Pollyannish view of the way life is. And again, such a view is contrary to Scripture. As Jesus states, in the world ye shall have tribulation, before, of course, adding the comforting words, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And in Matthew 5, verses 10 and 11, Jesus states, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Clear indication that there will be such persecution. Paul notes in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And Peter adds in 1st Peter 4 verse 12, Beloved think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. There is in fact a cost to following Jesus. We can see this throughout the Bible. Look at what happened to Stephen. Look at what happened to Paul who was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, and had all manner of things befall him. You can look it up in Second Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 28. Look at the fate of the apostles. Only John died a natural death. All of the others were killed violently because they followed Christ. And look at the martyrdom of so many since that time who have died for standing up for Christ. Indeed, if we follow Christ, we are more likely to suffer as the enemy takes aim at us. I mentioned faith at the start of this sermon. One of the key beliefs of the prosperity gospel is that if you have not made it or if you become ill, it is because you do not have enough faith. This is an attitude, of course, that extends beyond the prosperity gospel. We see it all the time, even in the past. We just have to look at the the book of Job. When his friends came to console him, they consoled him with words along the line of, hey, you must have done something really bad for God to do this to you. But we know that that is not the case. Bad things happen to good people as we've seen in the case of Stephen and Paul. And good things happen to bad people. Look at the listing of the kings of, uh, of Israel. You know They did not do good in the sight of God, yet they reigned for 50 years, for example. I mentioned Paul. We have only looked to look at Paul, who I would suggest had more faith than those who preached the prosperity gospel, and probably more faith than anybody who speaks any kind of gospel went through. That should be the clear indication. We can never know a person's faith, that is between the individual and God, but often people search for proxy measures, such as their state of health or wealth in this case. But it all becomes rather a circular argument. If you don't have money, it's because you have no faith, and if you have no faith, you're not going to get any money. But we are not entitled to judge the face of others. Only God can do so. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 4, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know that nothing by myself, yet am not hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord." So we are not entitled to judge another's faith. As Christ himself said, judge not, that ye be not judged. I've touched on a few problems here associated with the prosperity gospel. There are others. If you read through the literature, there's very little reference to sin. Oh yes, you will find talk about sin. After all, it says in some of the writings, poverty is sin. But poverty in the prosperity gospel is not sin as something that we need to work against. Rather, it is in the context of if you're poor, you're a sinner. There is nothing in the prosperity gospel about repentance. There is nothing in the prosperity gospel about Satan. And, of course, there is nothing in the prosperity gospel about the great controversy So the prosperity gospel overlooks a lot. But I want to close by noting that while it overlooks what the Bible teaches us, we must always remember what the Bible teaches us. And what they omit is almost all of the Bible. It begins with creation. Genesis 1.27 says that God created man in his own image. We are children of God. And we once had open fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. And yet because Adam sinned, all of humanity was separated physically and spiritually from God. As Genesis 3.23 notes, Therefore the Lord God sent him, Adam, forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And Paul notes in Romans 5.12, Wherefore by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And since humanity was separated from God because of sin, the penalty to atone for sin is the shedding of blood, as Leviticus 1.4 states. The wonder, of, the wonder of the gospel is Jesus Christ, who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. And the word was made flesh and dwelt upon us, John 1.14. Christ lived a perfect life according to God's law. For such a high priest became us, who is wholly harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, Hebrews 7.26, and shed his blood while dying in the place of sinners. And the prosperity gospel, if you pay attention to it, has very little reference to what Christ has done for us. For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a reason for many. Mark 10.45 And who in his own self bore our sins in his own body in the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. 1 Peter 2.24 Jesus was buried in a tomb for three days and rose on the third day. Now he calls on all of us to repent of our sins and to trust in him so as to be reconciled with God and to receive eternal life. We all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The biblical gospel does not promise that we will be wealthy and prosperous. The biblical gospel does not promise that we will all enjoy great health throughout the course of our lives. It does not cast us as masters of our own fate. It does not show God as beholden to us. Rather we as Christians are truly blessed in that we receive the Holy Spirit and we are truly blessed in that we will receive a new life in the heavenly kingdom. So beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. They come to us with a form of religion and heavenly grace, but they are not coming to feed the flock. They are coming instead to destroy the flock. And we must be aware and we must follow the true gospel. Thank you very much.